When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA. Today we are talking about prompts with special guest, Danny Larson. This podcast is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I'm your host, Shane, and I am a current ABMA board member and self-proclaimed behavior nerd. For anyone joining us again on the podcast, we're excited to have you back to continue the behavior discussion. The goal of this podcast is to implement one of the goals of the ABMA, which is to continue the spread of knowledge and sharing throughout the animal care field. Each episode, we'll break down one topic that involves the science of behavior change and the animal care field. Even though the content that you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, we think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with and others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all that you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. Before we dive into this episode, Just wanted to give a little update on the future of the podcast. First off, just wanted to let all of our listeners know that we are going to be taking a break around the winter holidays. So after this episode, we'll have one more episode this year and then take a little bit of a break a couple of weeks and then we'll be back with new episodes at the beginning of January 2024. Also, we're going to be changing the format of the podcast a little bit. Throughout this year, I have really loved doing this podcast. I'm so excited that everyone that's listening is enjoying it and want to continue to make sure that we can provide the best resource for everybody. So we are going to take some of the feedback from some of our listeners and starting next year in 2024, we will be going to a bi-weekly podcast, so we will release episodes every other week, and that's going to allow us to have a little bit of a clearer path forward through the podcast, be able to plan some things. What we're looking forward to doing in 2024 is having episodes that are releasing one after the other that are all related to each other. So by giving that little bit of a buffer, we'll be able to have some cohesiveness moving forward, also help with scheduling our guests because all of us are really busy. And additionally, some people, I know myself, even though I love podcasts, I'm listening to a bunch now and sometimes I fall behind because life gets busy. So hopefully it'll also be a way that everyone can stay up and be able to have a little bit of a time to catch up on our episodes. But we're going to be delivering 
the same types of content. We've got some really amazing guests lined up for the early half of 2024. So excited for some of the discussions that we are going to be having. But as always, if you have any questions or ideas of how we can make this podcast the best because this truly is a resource for everyone that is listening. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me or at abc at the if you have any suggestions for the podcast moving forward. But after all of that, let's get into today's episode. Excited to get back to talking about a behavior topic and breaking it down. Today, we are talking about prompts. And joining me as our guest, we have Danny Larson. So thanks for joining us on this episode today, Danny. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Excited to have you on the podcast. We were connected by the always great Jake Belair. Yes. So excited <laughs> that we had that. And uh, shout out to Jake and all the hard work that him and his team are doing, because I'm going to shamelessly plug the 2024 ABMA Annual Conference, which is being held in Nashville, Tennessee. And Jake is the first VP of the ABMA, which means that he is putting on the conference. And if you're listening to this episode in real time, early December 2023, we do have submissions for abstracts and posters still open until the 10th. So if you're interested in doing that, head on over to the ABMA's website and submit your presentations. And we hope to see you and Danny. We talked about this earlier in Nashville. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll see. <laughs> Full circle all the way there. But after we have that all the way, Danny, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey through the animal care and training field? Yeah. So I feel like usually people start this by saying, well, I always knew I wanted to work yeah, you, you know, with animals or at a zoo. I actually, that wasn't really the case for me. I knew from a young age that maybe I wanted to work with animals, but it sort of slipped away from me a bit during my college career. I started in zoology, switched to wildlife, switched to environmental conservation, and then found a really intense passion for anthropology and for human, you know, interact interactions with people and culture. And I was traveling a lot and I was like, you know what, I, I kind of was really more drawn to working, you know, somewhere else. <laughs> like I really did. I really was being pulled away from animals at the time. And after I graduated from college, I decided to apply for the Peace Corps. And while I was, that's a really long and intense application process. So while I was waiting for, you know, to hear back from the Peace Corps, I went and was working at Southwick Zoo, where I had done an internship when I was early on in my college career. Uh, I had done an internship and definitely really liked everything that I was doing, loved the zoo. I grew up the town over from Southwick, so it was kind of like my hometown zoo. And I decided to go back there after I graduated from college. And through that journey over the course of the next few months, really just found this intense love for what I was doing in the bird department and specifically with training. And I was given this opportunity to kind of build this program from scratch with a colleague of mine who was introducing me to a lot of these training techniques. And she had come from Natural Encounters and she had all this really fantastic experience from her college career and from her experience at NEI. And she sort of brought that, brought a lot of knowledge to the table. And together we just kind of like put our heads together 
my, you know, strong passion for working with people and education and her strong passion for training. And we sort of put those together and, you know, put together this brand new kind of welfare focused department where we would do these bird shows together. And so she ended up leaving and going to vet school. And I was given an opportunity from a very young age to kind of, you know, keep running with that torch. And so I did. And throughout my career, I've just been continuing to grow as a keeper, as a trainer, as a leader. And I just really have fallen in love with the science of behavior. I've fallen in love with birds. I've fallen in love with education. And I, for those wondering, decided maybe I won't do the Peace Corps. This was also 2014. And that like, I was potentially going to go to West Africa and there was a big Ebola breakout there. And I was like, hey, you know what, maybe I'll stay, maybe I'll stay in the United States. <laughs> and so I decided not to do the Peace Corps. And I've been at Southwick Zoo ever since. And I've just been, you know, taking advantage of learning opportunities through organizations like the ABMA and IAAATE and ZAA and AZA and different organizations that helped me grow. And that's kind of how I got to where I am today. And I'm now the curator of birds and training at Southwicks. I'm also the intern coordinator. So I do a lot with interns, a lot with new people coming into the fields. And it's a lot of fun. It's very fulfilling. And I, I love it. Wow, that was an amazing origin story. That was so cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank and, you. It's, it's uh, really amazing that you had this idea and you did it and then you just kept building off of it. And then obviously, even yeah. from this short team, I can tell them that you're really passionate. And I'm excited that you're on the podcast to kind of get back to the roots of the podcast, which is breaking down a term of the science of behavior change. So through Behavior yeah. Month, we had some different topics that we were covering. So I'm excited to get back to talking about a topic and breaking that down and mm -hmm. discussing it further. So we're going to get into that in a second, but I do have to ask, since mm -hmm. you're a bird nerd, as a fellow bird yeah. nerd, I have to know, what is your yeah. favorite bird species? Oh God, hands down corvids. Like I can't get no, hesi enough. no hesitation. I, I mean, yeah, no hesitation. <laughs> I mean, like that's not really a species of the family, but I am just so in love with Corvid, anything Corvid. I work with an African pied crow, so I guess I'm a little bit biased. I'd probably lean a little bit more towards that species, but God, Corvids are just the best. <laughs> what about you? Now I have to ask that, you. That's awesome. Well, I was going to say, uh, you're wrong. It's ground hornbill. Just kidding. My favorite. <laughs> I love ground hornbills. People who okay. listen to podcasts know that's my favorite. I've worked with two of them and I love their personalities. And I also just find their biology just completely cooperative breeding is just blows yeah. my mind so I, they I'm, are fascinating they're actually a dream bird of mine to work with so jealous that you get, have gotten to work with them they are i agree super cool birds yeah, yeah they are <laughs> so amazing and have way better eyelashes than me so i'm also yeah, jealous same. of them literally same <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right well, we got our bird nerding out of the way probably more bird talk later in the episode but yeah. to get started let's start with a definition so this episode's topic is prompts and a prompt is an antecedent stimulus that helps initiate a response a prompt increases the likelihood that the desired behavior will occur in response to a discriminative stimulus sdq etc so now that we have a definition, Danny, can you explain a little bit about what a prompt is in practice? Since that's a pretty broad definition. And so yeah. kind of explaining what that actually means. 
Yeah, of course. I know when I first agreed to do this and to talk about prompts, I was like, oh, easy, we can do prompts. But then like I was really thinking about it. And so many of these definitions are like, just you can get really all up in your head about, you know, mm -hmm. piecing together all of these different words and terminology. And it's actually far more complex when you really think about it than it seems when you just look at a simple definition. So I always like to explain things to, you know, interns when they come in, you know, in terms of something that they can really understand. So before we really break it down even more, what I would love to tell somebody is that a prompt is essentially additional information, right? It is, as you mentioned in your definition, an antecedent. It falls under that antecedent umbrella. So it's something in the environment that's giving the animal additional information to get to a des desired cue for, you know, whatever reinforcer that they're going to eventually earn for it. I like to describe it as using training wheels on a bicycle or like, you know, floaties to learn how to swim. So this is just an, you know, additional information that's going to help set the animal up for success so that we can eventually get a really strong cue. So or a strong behavior paired with a cue, I guess I should say. So um, it's really important to understand that any condition that we train under will become a part of the cue for that behavior. So, you know, with prompts being within the environment and part of those antecedents, you know, we can accidentally have all sorts of different prompts becoming the cue. So we want to be really careful, and we'll talk about this eventually, to sort of fade out some of those prompts that we do decide to use to ultimately shape a behavior. So we can talk about some examples of using prompts and props in general in practice. And a couple of the different examples, of course, you've got verbal, visual, and physical prompts. So what do those mean? So when we are shaping a behavior or training a behavior from scratch, um, let's say to get you know from point A, your antecedent, to the behavior leading to the desired consequence, we need a little bit of the animal to get some additional information when we're going from point A to point B. So I might use a verbal prompt, and that could look like telling the animal, like, I think about in terms of training my the African pie crow that's in my care, I might be moving with my body, which is more of a physical prompt to have him sort of follow me. I might also be saying, come on, Russ, or let's go, or, you know, using my voice to kind of prompt that movement out of him to get him to where he needs to be. So again, it's giving that additional information. Thinking about training Russell, I might also be using a visual prompt. So I might be waving my hand, you know, from the top of the bleachers to say, you know, I want you to come this way. So follow me this way. I might also be using a target. So a target could be part of the prompting process as well. So that target serves as a visual prompt to help give the animal additional information to get them to where you want them to go eventually. A lot of times in bird training, we use what we call, or I guess, I mean, I train specifically birds, but you could use this for any animal. I teach people a lot about our target hand. So basically what that means is, you know, you have a hand that has some type of reinforcement inside the hand. It's a closed fist and the animal doesn't necessarily know what is inside your hand, but you're using that hand as a target to say, if you follow my hand, you will eventually get reinforcement for coming towards my hand. And that's why it acts as a target because the animal is orienting part of their body to that hand. 
And when we are recall training birds and we're kind of starting from scratch, we might be holding out our hand in a recall position. That would typically be the cue. Hand flat palm goes out. That means come to me, that's my cue. But the bird doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to the bird at the start of this process, right? They're like, what the heck is that hand? What's it doing here? So I am gonna have to use a bit of a prompt or maybe in the beginning, we're using a lure, right? Baiting a little bit. We talked, you talked about an episode with Jake. The luring process can also be, or luring in general can also be a prompt. So I've got some food in my hand and I, you know, I'm asking the bird to come towards me with that food, come towards this hand that I'm holding out. Okay. Well, eventually I'm going to close that fist and turn that, that luring or that baiting into a target hand. Right. And so now all of a sudden the food is no longer present, but I'm still giving the animal additional information using that target hand to get them to step onto my hand or to fly to my hand. Once that is pretty well established, and every time I ask for a recall or a step up, I've got, you know, my flat palm out, which is my cue. I've got my target hand behind it. Every single time the behavior is performed, boom, I open up my hand, they get the treats. It's really important that I eventually take that hand away, right? I don't want that the animal should not be relying on that prompt every single time. Um, and I, I don't want that prompt to become part of the cue. I want to keep the behavior really strong. So eventually I'm going to take that target hand away. When I ask for the cue, the bird flies to my hand as soon as they see that cue and then boom, they get their reinforcement. And that's kind of how we can differentiate. I know we'll get into this a little bit more, the discriminative stimulus or the cue versus the prompt, right? So as soon as the bird is, or the animal is doing the behavior solely for the cue and they're earning reinforcement every time, and they're not necessarily following, you know, a target hand or following something to get to the desired behavior, that's when we know, okay, we've separated the prompt from the cue and boom, we have kind of our strong behavior. We have it under good stimulus control. And now it's time to make sure that we can generalize it into different environments. And I also really love the fact that you said it's additional information. When you were first mm -hmm. talking about definitions, when I got the definition of a prompt from our ABMA terms glossary, I really was like, this is one of those ones that really needs an explanation of what this is in practice. All those parts make a lot of sense and you can think about it, but how it is actually applied is giving additional information. And that might actually become part of this. The title of this might be prompts, giving additional information because Ooh, I love boom. it so much. Yeah, and it's <laughs> a, a really clear way. And you talked a lot about this dichotomy, this difference between an SD or a Q and a prompt and how they're kind of in this, when you're shaping a behavior, they're almost in this like dance with each other. But can mm -hmm. you explain a little bit more about what the difference is between an SD or a Q and a prompt? Yeah. So, um, so a prompt should be given sort of at the same time or immediately following an SD. So like I said before, using the recall hand and the target uh, hand simultaneously is an example. Like in the beginning, my Q, my SD, which is my flat palm, and my target hand comes up at the same time. Well, over time, I really want to make sure that I, as I said before, fade out that prompt uh, for you know, I don't, I don't want that prompt to become a part of the queue. Maybe that is the goal for certain individuals. That's typically not the goal for me and the way that I like to train. The SD or the queue is, um, is the instruction 
And the prompt is the information that they need to properly respond to the SD over time. So something that I really like to think of as well it, when I'm talking about prompts is it's sort of that invisible string, right? It's that invisible piece of information that is provided to the animal before the reinforcement happens, before once they get to the desired response, then we're giving them the reinforcement. So I also like to explain it to people like once that additional information fades out over time, as we do that and as we should do that, the way we can tell that we have successfully done that is when the animal responds to a bridge or responds to, you know, performs the behavior and then immediately looks for the reinforcement. So you can see that a lot of times when you're when you're shaping or training these behaviors and, you know, you might be using a target to get them from point A to point B to eventually give them the reinforcement. And they're sort of following that target around. Right. They're kind of like their head is being is tracking to seek that additional information in the environment. But once the behavior is really well established, as soon as you like ask for the cue, they do the behavior and they immediately look to you for that reinforcement. Like you, you may not even have had to bridge. Like they know like, okay, I understand what I'm supposed to do in response to that cue. I know I've done it. Give me my food, man, or give me whatever it is that I have earned. And so I think that's a really good way for people to sort of understand that they have successfully faded out a prompt. I think after that discussion, I'm just going to go back for a second to talk about mm -hmm. part of that definition is that a prompt increases the likelihood that a desired behavior will occur in response to a discriminative stim stimulus. It's exactly what you were just describing, that that is mm -hmm. additional information that is going to increase the fact that when you give that SD, the behavior will be performed. You've talked about the prompts being faded out. And so we've mm -hmm. talked about that the prompt is going to be faded out. Can you explain a little bit more of why that is important that we fade out the prompt in the final behavior? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was thinking about this because I knew this question was going to come up for this podcast. And I was like, like the way I would maybe explain it to an intern and going back to what I said about using floaties to swim well, what would happen if my floaties popped and I'm in the middle of a pool, right? I would very unfortunately realize that I don't actually have the skills or the knowledge or whatever it is to be successful. I am not trained to swim. I don't know how to swim. My floaties were just helping me get there. And that is kind of just this big picture, you know, putting it into perspective in terms of things that we can understand. But another right way that I would really like to explain this is um, the concept of clever Hans. <laughs> and I don't know if that's something that most folks are familiar with. It's something that I really like to talk with um, my team and our interns. All right. So clever Hans. Okay. Hans was the name of a horse who was being trained by his handler in the early 1900s. And his, his trainer had claimed that he trained this horse basic arithmetic, and he claims that he even trained him to read. And it, we came to find out that the horse was actually just picking up on different either um, body language from his trainer or different information, cues from the environment that gave him 
the idea that he had finally delivered the correct response to his trainer and therefore he was about to earn reinforcement. So it wasn't necessarily that he was trained to, you know, do math or to read, but he was picking up on tons of different environmental cues that gave him the the eventual reinforcement okay so the the classic definition of clever hans is basically the umbrella of influence a handler may have on their animal which then cast doubts over the animal's independent cognitive abilities that's a lot of words but in summary it's kind of like what i just said and i thought that this was a really really good way to explain the importance of fading out prompts because when we're training an animal to do whatever behavior we essentially want them to do we are providing like we talked about the definition of prompts lots of different information and if we're not careful about the prompts that we're using and fading them out then we will never essentially be confident that that animal has a hundred percent been trained to do that behavior to criteria after the specific sd was presented for that desired consequence and this is so important on so many different levels because the animal then may not be able to generalize right these behaviors into different environments and it's not properly trained it's not trained to criteria we the animal is essentially just sort of guessing right we get sort of random behavior we don't have great stimulus control we might get latency all of these things that we essentially really don't want when we're trying to get these behaviors you know under good stimulus control and paired with a proper cue so I really like that example. Um, and I think it's also a really good example of how oftentimes when we do choose to use a prompt, it might be better <laughs> to steer clear of those physical prompts, right? Because humans, so the physical prompts talking about what, you know, breaking down the difference between the prompts is, you know, any time that a person um, delivers some type of physical reaction to an animal. So, I might be moving towards an animal or away from them to influence that behavior. In a, another sense, I might actually be applying slight pressure onto a dog's back end to get them to sit down. Now that of course, by definition is negative reinforcement, but it also serves as a bit of a prompt, right? I'm using that physical pressure to essentially get the animal to do what I want them to do, to get them from point A to point B. Not recommended, not what we wanna do, but it is an example. And what can happen when we're using a lot of those physical cues is lots of different things, right? Because we don't always have perfect control over our bodies. So maybe I'm telling Russell with my hands to follow me or go this way, but something else is happening in my body that he might be paying attention to, right? Like I am not 100% in control over what I am doing with my flailing limbs and everything that's you know attached to my person or that's occurring on my body like in with dog training they talk about like simple little like you know shoulder presses to the front like pull your shoulder back like all these different things that the animal might be looking at and might be saying oh that's the information that i need that's the information that they want me to have to do this behavior and so a lot of times we might want to prioritize using some type of um, a different cue like a target or I'll talk about this later. I have an example that I used of training training my dog to offer, you know, a paw behavior with positive reinforcement. 
And that's just a really good example of, you know, relating this back to Clever Hans about how there are lots of different things that can be happening in the environment and lots of different information that the animal is getting. And if we're not really careful about baiting out those prompts and being cognizant of what the animal might actually be responding to, then we have a slew of problems. And so that's kind of why I wanted to bring that up and talk about Clever Hans. And so... I, I'd never heard of Clever Hans. I was familiar with Intelligent Anna. It was a donkey that did physics. I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. I'm just being really dumb. <laughs> Roll your eyes and like, it's fine. But like a donkey, sure, that sounds just about right. I don't know. Like <laughs> that could be a thing. <laughs> Very cool. Well, another thing that when you were talking, it had me thinking about the importance of fading out prompts. We talk mm-hmm. about you have a trainer that leaves or is Mm -hmm. sick or is um, away for an extended period of time and if this animal is so reliant on all the prompts but maybe your team knows the behavior as whatever the sd is you might see this animal not be able to do these behaviors because they're so reliant on prompts that a person has done or they're doing those things or your animal goes to another facility you're giving the animal that additional information but then you're setting Mm -hmm. them up to have all the information they need when the behavior is finished. Yeah, that's a really great example, definitely. And, you know, we live in this world where our animals are constantly, you know, depending on the situation, being transported, or like you said, a bit of a revolving door of staff and new people are coming in. And while the relationship is really important that, you know, that individual has with the animal, the criteria for that behavior is also really important. Not just the criteria for what we want the animal to do, but the the actual cue and what the criteria for the cue looks like. And that's really important too. So that's a really, really good point. I like that. And talking about fading out these prompts. So Mm -hmm. you've given the animal additional information, you've used a prompt, but now you're ready to fade it out. Can you give an example of how we can fade out a prompt, how we should think about fading out a prompt? Yeah. So usually we know that we're, you know, we've faded out a prompt when the animal performs that behavior without hesitation. Or like what I said before, we can tell when the animal is not really tracking or looking around in their environment for that additional information. They perform the behavior and they're looking to the trainer for that reinforcer either immediately after the bridge or maybe even before the bridge. And we we basically pay a really high reward for that really fast response when that happens. We make sure that we uphold that level of criteria. So once we have started to fade out those prompts, we don't really want to go back in in the same environment to using those prompts again. Now, maybe we have to reintroduce some of the, or use, go back to those tools in our toolbox when we're generalizing, right? If we have a bit of a breakdown, and I know we'll get to that eventually. Um, But we really want to make sure that we're testing the behavior under different environmental circumstances, to essentially make sure that, yeah, we have trained this, it is to fluency, and this behavior is really well established. And so, you know, that's not a very, depending on the situation, it might not be a very fast process. If we have sort of this invisible string of prompts, um, and it's multiple different prompts, we might want to fade just one out, you know, at first, and then eventually start to kind of chip away and fade the rest of them out. So, you know, I use the example of the target hand with the recall, but we might also be saying like, you know, I might be saying to Russell, I might have my recall hand out and my target hand out. And I might be saying, come on, Russ, like, 
with that visual prompt and the verbal prompt and really encouraging him to come over to me. So eventually I might have to get rid of that. Come on, Russ, that verbal cue, because I want him to know that he actually has to turn his head and look to a trainer for information, right? So he looks to me, he looks to me for information because he knows he's not going to hear it. So we get rid of that prompt. And then he sees that my target hand is up with my, my cue. He comes to me, he gets that reinforcer. Now, eventually what I want that behavior to look at, to look like is for me to just put my hand up, right? When he's ready, when he's looking, my hand goes up and he comes right to me. And then I have a very, very fluent behavior. I have no latency. I've got an animal that knows when to look to me for information and knows what to do. He's confident. And that's really what that should look like. Amazing. I love that example of talking about how there are going to be these multiple steps to fading it out mm -hmm. and different, it's going to happen at different times. And one of my favorite sayings is the study of one in one moment. If you're training yeah. the exact same behavior with two different animals, you're probably going to be using one different prompts or the same prompts at different times and fading them mm -hmm. out at different times and adding them back in at different times. And that's, I think one of the kind of unique aspects of prompts in general is that you're going to use them in so many different ways in a lot of different contexts and mm -hmm. making sure that you're not just honed in on like when I do this behavior the prompt is this but listening mm -hmm. to the animal and seeing what they need that additional information for yeah and that's really a skill that you have to develop over time right you have to be able to understand when the animal might need that additional information and when they don't need it. And that's not something that people can just know how to do right off the bat. It's definitely something that needs to be practiced. And as we know that behavior is the study of one, similar to what you were saying, we have to make sure that we're catering to whichever individual that we're working with. And also we're catering to the different environmental conditions. Like maybe I, I keep using Russell, but maybe I'm training Russell outside on a day that they're doing construction and okay, I'm getting ahead of us, we're going to have a behavior breakdown because of that. And we have to kind of go back and resort to using some of those prompts until we get that behavior back up to fluency with these different environmental distractions. So absolutely. We just talked about fading out a prompt, but when we have behavior breakdown, how can we utilize a prompt when a behavior breaks down? Yeah. So we want to whip out some of those tools in our toolbox and the prompt is certainly one of them. So when a behavioral breaks, when a behavior breaks down, or when we're generalizing a behavior, you know, all of a sudden, we have this new environment, we have this new, all these new antecedents, and um, that behavior might not have been as generalized, or maybe it wasn't trained to fluency as well as we thought. So we have to go back. And we sort of, I always call it kind of backtracking, and relax, not the criteria for the behavior, but relax the way that we get there, right? So we, we go back to that invisible string and we need to essentially, like I said, pull out some of those tools in our toolbox. So I'll give us an example. We've talked about them a million times. So let's talk about them some more, Russell Crowe. Uh, for an, as an example. Oh my gosh, did... how did I not realize that until this moment? <laughs> Because I didn't say it. It's only really obvious when you say Russell Crowe. That is amazing. Okay, yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to derail you, but that is awesome. No, yeah, right. That's okay, amazing. I can't take okay. full credit for it. My my former coworker was the, the mastermind behind that one. Okay, so 
This is a, a fun example that happened very recently. So typically we end our shows early October. We're usually not doing shows into the fall. The zoo season, you know, stops at Southwicks on October 31st. We're not even open right now. So we're not doing shows normally, but we just hosted the Zoological Association of America conference in October and it was at the end of October. And we decided to do sort of a, an abridged version of our semi-free flight, not true free flight, because we do have netting around our arena. It's very nice for us. We don't have to worry about fly-offs. Um, we have a show that's like, you know, has some free flying birds. And then we have a show that is mostly like former companion parrots. And so we created a show that blended the two. I digress. But anyway, getting back to Russell Crowe. We had this really big setback because we also happened to be hosting this um this jack-o'-lantern type journey at Southwick's and there were lights everywhere and jack-o'-lanterns everywhere. And they were gonna do a performance inside the arena and they started to put a bunch of lights all around the bleachers and all around the railings and all this stuff. Just just fun, like Halloween, Christmassy like lights. And they were the bane of Russell Crowe's existence. Like he absolutely hated these lights. And I've heard the not. same thing about the actor too. Jack <laughs> really? his bane. Yeah. Well, I don't know where <laughs> Wait, I read is that. Is that true? Or are you no, just I'm being just silly? Joking. I'm just joking. This I'm is, being okay. silly. <laughs> yeah, okay. I love that. I love that for you. Um, so anyway. You're so nice. You're so nice. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> so anyway, Russell Crowe, the crow hated these lights and we were like, crap, we have to go back. And I started to use a lot of prompts when it came to training him because we had this special show coming up for ZAA and we really needed to get this behavior back on track. And so, you know, I started going, you know, he would come out, he would station on his show perch that was right next to his, his holding, which happens to be inside the arena. And he just did not want to fly out to the main, main portion of the stage. He did not want to go over the bleachers. He didn't want to land on the bleachers. He didn't want to go anywhere near the lights. And so I started to have to, you know, I was recalling him. I was using that, that target hand, which I normally don't need for Russell. Usually I'm just able to throw up my hand and he flies right to it, but he needed a little bit of an extra incentive, a reminder that something's in it for him, despite this huge, you know, fear aversion to these lights. And there's a lot of, when you think about that, there's a lot of competing contingencies, right? You have this, you know, I'm trying to use positive reinforcement. You have this negative reinforcement contingency that's competing with those two things. And so when we think about things on a spectrum, we need to address this negative reinforcement contingency as well. But if we're circularly using positive reinforcement, I'm going to try to use those prompts. I might even have to use a little bit of baiting and luring to try to get him to come as close to lights as possible. Um, we were successful in using sort of some some other physical prompting. We were using different stations. So I started to set up a lot of different station perches. And I was basically just kind of targeting him to these different station perches that were eventually moving him a little bit closer to the lights to, you know, earn those positive reinforcers. The end goal is to have him go, you know, all the way over these bleachers to go over to the stage where he's supposed to go and start his show routine. But we, we couldn't even get there. And so that's just an example of how I really needed to backtrack because all of a sudden we have we had this new antecedent that was hindering this behavior to such an extent. Long story short, we were on a very 
very you know small time budget and we ended up having to take down all of the lights in the show arena so that russell would actually fly in the arena for this special ziA show so i i unfortunately don't have like a a really you know tr- great story about how we use prompting to eventually and then we're able to fade out the prompts to get to the desired behavior but it's just an example of how the slightest thing in the environment can force that can force us to have to resort back to using those prompts um and you know i would have continued on that path of using these different methods and using targets and target hands and to influence him to get as close to the stage as possible, we simply didn't have the time. But that's an example of when we would have to use a prompt when the behavior breaks down. I will say that is a great example. I did not expect it to include a multitude of jack-o'-lanterns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was actually, it's like across from the show arena, they were like, we're going to do a, we're going to do like a, a crow corner, or they called it like corn. Corvid Corner or something. And so it was like a bunch of crow corners too. And Russell was like, no. I was like, buddy. That's amazing. It's going to be all right. But it wasn't okay. It simply wasn't okay. Well, you helped him work through it. In the end, you set him up for the best scenario for him to succeed. Right. Right. And, yeah. and I'm sure the show was awesome. Yeah, it, it was. It was awesome. Yeah. And and he was a star simply because the lights were not there. <laughs> and because he sounds like an amazing crow. He is an amazing crow. Yeah, yeah. I do have another maybe a little bit more practical example that might be a little bit fun to talk about as well. So we do a lot of training retrieve with a lot of our parrots, these, these former companion parrots. And, well, you know, what that looks like early on in the shaping process is just giving you know, the animal, a chip or a small object, and they don't know what to do with it. They're like, what the heck is this? And so they just drop it. They drop it into a bowl that we conveniently have placed directly underneath their beak. Eventually we shape that so that they're turning their head to put the chip into the bowl, right? So that's, that's an important piece of the shaping process there. And I'm not necessarily using any prompts um, with that scenario, but once I have that behavior really well trained, you know, I hand them the chip, they put it in the bowl. I'm like, oh, cool. Okay. This, they seem to understand what we're doing here. So that was working really well for who this was our Jenday Conyer that I was training to do this behavior. And I was like, cool. Yeah, he gets it. And so to test this, right, I ended up taking the bowl and I put it on the other side of the perch. So instead of him traveling to the left to put the chip in the bowl, I now wanted him to travel to the right. Well, guess what he did? He traveled, even though the bowl was on the other side of him, he traveled to the left and he dropped it on the ground. And this is another kind of example of that clever Hans coming into to, to play here, right? I thought that this behavior was trained really well to fluency. And he was like, nah, I just know that I need to walk this way and then drop it. So I thought that the presence of the bowl was the clear, you know, this is my cue here, put, take this object and put it in the bowl. And he was just going the other way. So this wasn't necessarily, I wouldn't call this a behavior breakdown. I would just call it something that wasn't super well, you know, trained. And there was a, a little bit of that clever Hans in there. And he was clearly, you know, understood the cue in a much different way or understood the information in a much different way, or just was, you know, 
got different information from me that wasn't necessarily what I wanted him to do. And so I ended up having to use a bit of a prompt once he did get that chip, instead of him going the other way, I was using my hand, you know, and I was just pointing to where I wanted him to go. So I was like, come this way. And I pointed to the bowl and he was like, oh, and he just like did his little cute little conure shimmy over to the, the bowl and actually placed the chip in there. So that's kind of another example of how we can, in a, in a much smaller setting, you know, train a, a little guy <laughs> using our finger, follow, follow my finger, this target that you're usually pretty good at following over to the bowl. So I love, the, love that example. And also yeah. all I can think about is the fact that if it's not already, conure shimmy should definitely be a dance move. Yes, it should. Yeah, it absolutely should. Oh my gosh, I love Conyers. They're so adorable. <laughs> that is amazing. All right, well, to finish our episode off today, Danny, do you have a training tale to tell our audience? Even though you've, you've told a lot of training tales, yeah. but because this is the end of the podcast, you have to tell a specific training tale. I'm going to tell a training tale about training my dog. I've talked a lot about training birds and training Russell, but we're going to talk about my little blue tick beagle named Shine who is now going to be 12 years old. And I don't want to talk about that, but I, I do want to talk about me training him to um, put his paw on my hand. So essentially give paw. Right. And this, this was a many years ago that I actually trained this and I was really proud of it because I wanted to train him purely with positive reinforcement. I did not want to use any type of pressure to encourage him to lift his paw and to train it that way. I was like, Nope, we're using positive reinforcement. I was pretty new to the, the training world at this time. And I was like, I'm just going to use my big brain. I didn't watch any videos. I didn't listen to any, any, you know, I didn't get any ideas from anything else. I just really wanted to problem solve and figure this out. Well, I had trained my dog shine, how to target my hand. I would just say, you know, touch and hold up my hand palm down. And he would just jump up with his little nose and touch my hand. So this was an issue because when I was presenting my hand to eventually try to shape him to put his hand to my paw, he would consistently put his nose, nose down to my paw because he had such a strong reinforcement history of targeting his nose to my hand. And I wanted him essentially to target his paw to my hand, palm up. So very different, right? Palm down for target and, and you know, having his nose come up to my mm -hmm. hand, but palm up, but to me different, to him, same thing. So I was like, okay, how do we do this? So I'm like, okay, my hand is a problem here. I need, I need to use something different. So I went into my kitchen I'm like looking around and I find a soup spoon, like a big one, a big black, like soup, like ladley, but not, not a ladle. What do you call that? Just like, just like whatever, a big spoon. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I used this spoon and I was holding it in extension of my hand. And I kind of just put it down kind of near where he was sitting. And I used my like target hand, right? A little bit of a prompt here. And I just had him step towards it and his foot accidentally stepped on the soup spoon. So, you know, I bridged, I gave that reinforcer right away. So a couple repetitions of this, him accidentally putting his hand on the spoon, he got, he earned himself a treat. So I lifted up the spoon just a tiny bit. I think actually, instead of just lifting up the ground, I think I put it like on my lap. So it, it was still like on a surface, but it was, it was higher up. He actually had to lift his paw instead of just accidentally stepping on it. So I, I, you know, moved his head a little bit more towards me so that he actually had to lift up his paw to kind of step on my lap, accidentally put that hand in the spoon, his 
paw in the spoon and he got a reinforcer. And then I held it a little bit higher, right? And I kind of, you know, was waiting for him to put two and two together of like, once my paw goes onto that spoon, that's when I get my reinforcement. And so he did, he, he actually lifted his paw up and put his paw right on the spoon. And I was like, boom, jackpot. He gets it. He understands. Okay. I want, I want, she wants my paw to go on the spoon. So then I slide my hand underneath the spoon. And instead of the spoon being an extension of my hand, the spoon is right on top of my hand. And, you know, he lifts his paw and he puts it on the spoon. And, and, you know, I'm saying paw, I'm saying paw. And I have a visual cue and a verbal cue. I say paw, I put the, the spoon up. He puts his paw in my hand. This is going really well for several reps. And then I start to just move the spoon back a little bit farther, you know, and I'm saying paw and he puts his hand on my, the tips of my fingers with the spoon, you know, on my wrist. And then he gets a lot of reinforcers. And then I move the spoon farther and farther back. And then I have this beautiful behavior where I am able to put the spoon behind my back. I put my hand up. I say paw, boom, paw goes on my hand. And I was like, I've done it. I did it. I shaped it from, from, you know, the beginning with this, this hound that has such a strong reinforcement history of even sniffing new objects. Like I'm pretty sure at first with the spoon, he did kind of like sniff it. And I just ignored the sniffing because I'm like, no, for once, I don't want you to just immediately put your nose down and sniff this. And it was, it was really rewarding. I was really proud of myself and I thought it was a really fun thing to talk about on the podcast. That's like one of my favorite training tales that doesn't even involve me training an animal at work. So, so that was really fun. So now shine knows that when my palm is down, that means target your nose to my palm. And when my palm is up, that means I want your paw to make contact with my hand. So he does have two, essentially two different targets. And I love that. And it was all trained with purely positive reinforcement. So we're very proud of Shine. <laughs> That's amazing. And I really yeah. can't wait to write in the podcast description that stay tuned for your training tale where Danny taught her dog Paul with a soup spoon. This yes. A great, you great. Have, you and, have to put that in there. And the really funny thing is, is that in our episode that we talked about targets there our guest grace sullivan that episode just we were talking about what could be a target it's like anything could be a target and said all the normal things and just randomly she said a spoon i don't know why she did it and now it's come full circle that someone has indeed used a spoon as a target yes yes i love that (laughs) i'm so happy yeah yeah it's fantastic so for anyone who wants to train their dog to to give pause don't forget to grab your soup spoon yeah get a, get <laughs> or just, a look nice for, soup spoon. just look for some inspiration in your kitchen i don't know <laughs> yeah. that is so amazing i love it so much <laughs> and to finish this off if anybody has any questions or want to get in touch with you is there a way that they can reach you yeah so on instagram i am at danny Poirier, my maiden name which is now my middle name p-o-i-r-i-e-r Danny D-A-N-I. Um, they can also contact me via email. It's just Danny D-A-N-I at southwixzoo.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And thank you once again for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And that concludes today's episode focusing on prompts. This, of course, just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out on any of the ABMA social channels or by emailing abc at theabma.org because we'd love to hear from you. A special thank you once again to our guest, Danny. 
James McAla for our theme song, Ava on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ava the Sea Lion, all of our ABMA members, and to you for listening and joining in on the behavior conversation. If you aren't already a member, please consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us next episode on Animal Behavior Conversations as we talk about behavioral husbandry for the individual versus the species. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. I've got swimming. I've got floaties. I've got training wheels. Where's my clever hunk? Okay. Oh, that's going to be such a great blooper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to put that in there. Don't worry. I got swimming. I got floaties. I got training wheels. Where's my clever hunk? That's perfect. That silly horse. Okay, so it's a horse. Hang on. My notes are really all over. It's the a place. horse. Oh. I, I'm I'm it's on the edge of my seat. This is it's great. It's a horse.